I'm going to invite us this morning to 2 Corinthians, the book of 2 Corinthians. If you picked one of these up, that's all that this is in this book. So you can open a blue book to 2 Corinthians, the very beginning of chapter 1. Or if you've got a Bible and you want to follow along with that, you can join with me there. But 2 Corinthians, we're going to dive into this new series together. We've uh, just finished the book of Esther, which I think is one of the most underappreciated books in the Old Testament. A lot of people don't like to deal with it because Esther doesn't talk about God. It was an interesting book to go through together as we learned about the Lord through a book that doesn't even talk about God. Um, And today we're going to engage in a New Testament book that people treat similar to uh, the Old Testament book of Esther. There's probably, I'm going to guess, if you've grown up in church, you've probably not spent a whole lot of time studying the book of 2 Corinthians. In fact, this might be the first sermon series you've ever gone through in, in the book of 2 Corinthians. And there's a few reasons for that. One, there's not a lot of detail on on uh, some of the background of what Paul is addressing here. There is some information about what Paul is addressing in this book. But when you study any book of the Bible, it's, it's important to understand the context of what's happening surrounding uh, any particular book you jump into. Uh, a lot of people, um, when they study God's Word, if they're doing it in a wrong sense, uh, they immediately start reading verses and start making application. And anytime you do that, you always run the risk of misinterpreting what Scripture says, right? Um, it's important to remember, anytime you open up a book of the Bible, to answer the question, question, what did this passage mean to the people there and then before you make the interpretation of what the passage intends for you to the here and now? All right, when, when the first century authors are writing the New Testament, they're addressing issues happening in the first century. So it's best to understand what's happening in the first century before we then jump to the application for our own lives as it relates to today. And, and in 2 Corinthians, you, you meet one of those complex positions where some of that information we can't entirely know with the life of the Apostle Paul as he's directing uh, the, the book of 2 Corinthians. In fact, 2 Corinthians, most theologians believe that 2 Corinthians is likely 4th Corinthians, meaning the Apostle Paul wrote four letters to Corinth, and two of them we have in the New Testament. Two of them were not intended to be in the New Testament, and the reason is because we don't have them in the New Testament, but 1 but Corinthians is actually most likely 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians you have in the New Testament is most likely 4th Corinthians. It's kind of like as you study these, these epistles, these letters that the New Testament authors wrote, um, it's kind of like tuning in to a phone conversation from just one side of the discussion. And you need to know what's happening on the other end to really get the full picture. And the second thing that makes this book uh, not so much always the, the preferred book of the New Testament is that this is the most personal letter Paul wrote in all of the New Testament, which is incredible to me because you think Paul wrote the book of Philemon or, or he, he wrote to Titus or to Timothy, all personal letters to individuals. But it's 2 Corinthians that is the most personal book that Paul has written. And when you look at the Apostle Paul, you think to yourself, well, Paul is an apostle, right? And I am not that. And so how in the world can a book written by a guy who, who, who's in full-time ministry as an apostle relate to me, right? And so people see that and they think, well, it's, since this book is so personal with, with the apostle Paul, I don't see a lot of application. But when I read this book, I, I get all sorts of excited about what's, what contain, what's contained in this book for two reasons. One is that all of us are called into ministry. And Paul might have had the, might have had the title of apostle, but, but everyone that follows Jesus is called to live on mission for Jesus. And, and I think, you know, as Paul lives his ministry, how 
incredible it is that we have a book that he gets so personal about the things that he encounters in life and he relates as he's living his life for the Lord. Some of the adversity he goes through in, in the most intimate of ways he describes for us. And so as we think about our own personal ministry and the struggle we have, we, we have a brother in the Lord who, who's going through similar things and we can connect to him and, and better understand our own lives as we try to live in light of, of the Lord. Now, when, when you read this book, you know, some of you look at this and think, well, uh, you know, Paul, he's, he's the perfect Christian, and I, I can't fully relate to him. And, and, and you know, there's, there's no one better in Christianity other than Jesus than the Apostle Paul, right? But, but I think it's important to remember as you open this book that uh, as many people cherish the Apostle Paul, especially in the first century, he had just as many enemies, if not more. Uh, Paul, even the last few letters uh, of Paul's life, if you get to the end of uh, the book of Timothy, you start to see Paul giving a laundry list of people that, that love him and that he loves and people that absolutely hate him. And it's like a 50-50 split for Paul and, and how, how extreme that, that, that gets for him. And, and when you read about Paul's ministry in, in Corinth, he establishes this church in, in his second missionary journey. So Paul at least had four missionary journeys we know of. The book of Acts, we find three in that. Um, you can read how he established the, the church in Corinth in, in Acts chapter 18, how it started. He worked there with Priscilla and Aquila. But, but the church of Corinth, after he started the church in Corinth, the church in Corinth went through a period where they hated Paul. In fact, we're, we're going to find in this book that rather than follow the Apostle Paul, the church in Corinth started to follow what they titled people that were not just apostles, but super apostles, right? You got to take that to a whole new level. Super apostles. Paul, we don't listen to you. You're, you're like level one. We're at 2.0 now. That's, that's how they treated. They had this disdain uh, for, for the Apostle Paul. But Paul, even though he's He's maligned by the first, this first century church. And, and when you read about um, the church of Corinth, this is the most messed up church in all of the New Testament. And, and yet, when you, when you read about Paul's interaction with him, Paul never gave up on the church. And for me, I just asked the question, why? Why would you, why would you go through that? <laughs> like, why, why, did you, why did you not say, you know what, let's start over. <laughs> hey, we're going to go to the other, other town down the street. Why did you stay in such a, a mess as, as Corinth? And I think as this book starts, Paul, Paul really begins to reveal for us just a few reasons. And I want you to see this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A few reasons I think the apostle Paul stayed and, and fought for this church. He uh, not so much fought with the church as he, as he fought for the church. And one is, is how this book begins when Paul acknowledges who he is, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, this is a normal introduction for the apostle Paul, but I, I want us to see here that, that he is connecting his position, which is a unique position in the church, right? An apostle. We're going to talk about in this series what that title means, whether that's a title for today or not. We're not going to talk about it today, but it's an issue Paul addresses because the church fought against him in this position, right? He, he's an apostle, and they say, well, we quit following those. We follow super apostles now, right? And it, it begs the question, what is that title? But, but I want you to see when Paul describes this title, he connects it directly to Jesus in the will of God. And what it's, what it's correlating to for us is, is this understanding. To reject Paul is to reject Jesus' message and to reject Jesus altogether. 
And he knows how important it is for us to follow Christ in this world. And so therefore, because his identity is directly connected to the message of Christ and Jesus himself, he wants the church to really understand who Jesus is. The second thing I want to point out is how Paul continues to treat this church. He loved these people, even though these people had a disdain towards him, at least some within the church did. He loved them. In fact, he continues to refer to his relationship with the church as saints. Like He looks at a church that's living dirty and rotten, and he calls them saints. Right? That's what it says in the end of verse 1. He refers to them as saints, and his desire for them is grace and peace. Now, some of us may look at that title saint and think, you know, I thought that was a, a word reserved for people like Mother Teresa Caliber, right? But the truth is, in, in, the, in the New Testament, the word saint is for any, any believer that has placed their faith in Christ. You have been set apart and you belong to the Lord. And because all of us have been redeemed and washed clean in Jesus, when God looks at us, he sees the perfection of Christ, And so therefore, it makes us all belonging to him and saints and the ideas of the Lord. And that is how Paul continued to refer to as the church. You are saints. And to be able to understand what that means in Jesus, my my desire for your life is grace and peace. And then then on top of that, uh, he he sees the opportunity of, of what God can do in this church if this church's heart is completely bought into him. You know, he loves them where they're at, but he also loves them too much to let them stay there. And he wants them to understand the potential of what God can do in their lives if their lives are fully surrendered to him. That's why he's saying, look, to you, the church in Corinth, and to all those in Achaia, meaning Corinth is the the major metropolis of this greater region. And and when you start to influence the city, so goes the countryside. You want to know where any country is going? Look to the major influence cities of, of a nation. And pretty soon, that's where the rest of the country will be. And when Paul did his ministry, that's why he went to the, the large population, populated areas uh, throughout Rome is because he, he knew if he could start to influence the city, he could get to the countryside. And he's thinking that this, the city of Corinth, is, it's an up-and-coming city. It's a, a city that's, that's growing. Today, you can even Google the city of Corinth and you can see uh, the, the monuments and the buildings that were built during Paul's ancient day. When Paul did ministry here, he did ministry as a tent maker with Priscilla and Aquila. You can still see the marketplace where Paul did ministry, the, the room ruins of that still still stand. This city was a place of, of incredible influence. And Paul wanted the church to see this. And when, when he enters into this church, knowing this, this church, this church does not faint, think favor, uh, favorably of him in, in every way, Paul goes into this broken moment, not as a brute force, but to, to communicate how to watch God work mightily in our weakness. Paul doesn't come to them beating on his chest trying to face the next challenger. But Paul's demeanor is, is poised with, with this grace and humility and servant-like attitude that it just, it's continued to be reflected throughout the book, which is why we, we created these banners that we did to remind us that there's some great thoughts that Paul shares where he refers to us as these, just these jars of clay, just able to be broken, but God can do some incredible things through us as he makes use of us in this, in this world. And, and he says in Corinthians that God's power is made known in my weakness. Paul's attitude, it reminds me of, of 
a prayer of David Brainerd, which I'll, I'll share a little bit about him in a little bit. He was a minister in the 1700s, but David Brainerd's prayer, much like Paul's in this book, was this, Lord, let me make a difference for you that is utterly disproportionate to who I am. And guys, the reality is when you think about doing anything in this world and you, and you, you, you consider just the, the darkness of, of what life is and what life can be, and yet Jesus calls you to be a, a light in this world, I mean, the, the tendency of all of us is to think, well, who am I? And how in the world could God ever expect me to make, be a part of any difference made in this world? Does he not know how difficult this situation is or how complex things have become? Or does he not know the state of how things, the trajectory of how things are going right now? That we're, we're, we're in a situation that may not feel as, as positive as I would like. And I just feel like a little, a drop in the bucket. But 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians is about God's power made known in darkness. And that was David Brainer's prayer in the 1700s. Doing ministry in some of the most complex circumstances. God, if you are that power, and God, if you can work in that way, Lord, help me to make a difference that's completely disproportionate to who I am. Lord, let that strength work in my life. And, and Paul demonstrates that. And that's the question we want to ask this morning. Lord, how can I live a life utterly disproportionate to who I am? You know, when I think about um, the call of Christians around this world to live on mission, and I just broad glance look at this world. And guys, as the world continues to grow, one of the things that's easy to recognize is the amount of Christians in this world are not keeping up with just even the population increase, let alone reaching the lost world around us right now. Like the world continues to grow, and Christianity is not growing on that same trajectory. And yet the message that we carry is so important to, to knowing the purpose for which people exist, the relationship that God calls them into in him, that they can find hope not only in this world, but for all of eternity. And God has handed that gift of that message to us that brings light uh, to, to darkness and lives transformed both now and forever. God, how, how can I make a difference that is disproportionate to who I am. And you think about your own personal circumstance, that wherever you are in life, that God calls you to be a minister of his truth, his gospel. Like Every one of us have a place of influence in this world, and all of us are called in that place of influence to be a minister for the Lord. Yet God, when I think about that, that responsibility and that gift of that opportunity, it, it feels overwhelming, lest in that somehow I can connect to you and you, Lord, can be my strength. How, how can I do that? Well, Paul starts off verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Paul's introduction here, it's a liturgical formula. It's, it's, 
it's not uncustomary to, to begin this way. In fact, this is the norm to start a letter off this way. I think if I were the Apostle Paul, maybe in the flesh in this moment, I would probably not start with a posture of such niceties to people that don't like me. Um, but Paul chooses to, right? And Because he's walking with Jesus rather than, than the flesh. And, and then he, he takes this liturgical formula here of being, uh, the idea of bless the Lord, bless the Lord. This means praise the Lord. And what Paul is saying here is, is look, if you want to begin this journey in the midst of this complex world with the darkness around us to be a light for Jesus and to influence for good that the gospel may set people free. Here's where you need to start. And point number one in your notes. Start with worship. Start with worship. And he, he's saying to the church, look, church, we are not on the same page together. In fact, you have this frustration towards me that I am not going to reciprocate towards you. But if we're going to do anything for Jesus in this world, what we need to do is we need to do it together. We need to do it in worship. And this is why Paul said, blessed be the God and Father, and look at this, of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's including this church to engage in this worship with him. That if we're going to do anything for God that matters in this world, we need to see the greatness of who our God is. Any step that we take, you read anything, Old Testament, New Testament, any, any great saint of ages that you say, man, that, if I could, my life could be like that believer in the Lord, like if I could just model half of what they've done in their life, I can promise you anyone that's ever accomplished anything great with Jesus, their journey with God started in seeing the greatness of who their God was. God, let my soul be enamored with the glory of your goodness. And this is where, where Paul's prayer begins for the church, blessed. Let's start with, with the idea of, of fully surrendered and worship to God because as, as my soul is, is fully surrendered to the, the goodness of who God is, it will start to attribute my worth in his presence. Anything that you worship in life, you're worshiping because you want to find your value from it. And that's where the journey begins with us. God, if I am to live my life this way as you call me to in this world, I need to see and be reminded of continually in my life of your goodness and greatness in this world and over me. God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes further from that. And let me just ask if you look at the life of the Apostle Paul and you think, man, if I could just model some of that in my own life, if you want to be any caliber of Paul at all, reflect him in any degree in your life, you also have to be willing to do point number two. Point number two in your notes is this be willing to pay the cost. Be willing to pay the cost. I told you in the beginning, we look at Paul today and we think, greatest Christian to ever live. But you remember, first century, Paul had as many enemies, if not more, as he did friends. Because of his great love for the Lord. Because his life is over, over, enamored with his greatness. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, verse 15, this is what the Lord said, said to Paul. Before he even started, he says this. He sends someone to go speak to the apostle Paul before he's fully converted. And he says, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. How many want to sign up for that, Right? 
In, in Acts chapter 14, though, it says of the church in, in verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Paul was doing this as he went on his missionary journey. He was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In fact, if you go read the fullness of this section, verse 13, Blessed be the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, and with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now, when it talks about Christ's sufferings here, it's not saying you need to add to anything that Jesus did for us on the cross. That's not, that's not in what it's referencing to. In fact, I think what, what Paul is alluding to to talk about Christ's sufferings is the, the Jews understood that when the Messiah would come, they had this term called birth pains. And they understood that when the Messiah would come before the fullness of the kingdom would be realized that there would be a birth pains that, that the children of Israel or God's people would go through. In fact, Jeremiah 22, verse 23 talks about it. Hosea chapter 13, verse 13 talks about it, that there would be a struggle of God's people before the fullness of that kingdom would be realized on on this earth. But there are afflictions that God's people will endure simply for following after Christ because of your, your faith. Now, I'm not advocating as believers, because this passage says there are afflictions in pursuing Jesus, that all of you need to go find a painful road to walk, right? Torture yourselves when we leave, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that that is, that is something that we need to uh, just run towards, right? But, but I will say, in following after Jesus, sometimes there becomes a choice between what is convenient and what is of Christ. And James says it this way in James chapter 1, Consider it all joys, my brother, when you endure various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect work. What James is saying, and what Paul is connecting us to, is how do you know that your faith has any true substance to it, lest it be willing to struggle for the sake of Jesus? If you give up on Jesus simply because it's not convenient for you, did you really ever have faith in Jesus? See, the afflictions that we pay in pursuing Christ is also an opportunity to demonstrate to this world and even to ourselves that before anything else in life, what matters most to me is Christ. And the reason that matters is because of the worth of the Lord that I've come to know as I've worshiped him. Struggle, affliction, becomes the the opportunity in our life to see if our faith is genuine in Jesus. And when Paul writes about this struggle in Corinthians, there's about 10 words in Greek that deal with struggle or or hardship, and five of them are used in 2 Corinthians. And this word affliction here means one uh, as pressing you from the outside, this this pressure placed upon you because of of your faith in Jesus. It's not just simply pressure from from just general life. This is is Christ's suffering. This is pressure because you've identified yourself as as a a follower of, of Jesus. So the question, how much are you willing to pay for your faith? Is Jesus worth it? Is the cause of Christ worth it? 
One of the ways it helps us to make that decision as a yes in pursuing Christ is to see the greatness of who God is as we worship. But, but, but also, the second thing that Paul mentions to us within the, the context of these verses, that he, he, is, he is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our, our afflictions. Verse 5, as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort too. I can't give you a reason for why every bad thing happens in life. I cannot give you a reason for why every uh, bad thing ha- that you've experienced, you've, you've gone through in life. But Jesus, Jesus will give an account to that, to that for us one day. He will help us see the greater picture of the, of the struggles that we have experienced in life. But, but in this section of Scripture, Jesus starts, us, starts to help us understand a few things. And one is this. The promise of comfort is so important to the struggles that we, we face. The idea of comfort in this passage is saying to us, when I go through hardship, I, I want to know, I want to know at the very least that God cares. And the thought of his comfort meeting me in my hardship is, is communicating that, that there, there is a God who cares and, and there's a God who wants to be near me and there's a God who, who wants to work through me and there's a God who wants to help me accomplish what he has called me to in this world. In fact, this, this word comfort that Paul chooses to use here is, is connected in Greek to the same word parakletes, which is the word for the Holy Spirit. It's in John chapter 14 to John chapter 16. Remember, Holy Spirit it's referred to as the, the great comforter. And he's saying as he is the comforter that God's promised you as being uh, the Holy Spirit, as he indwells you, that he will comfort you in your affliction as you live for the Lord in this world. And this idea of comfort, it, it, it means more than just coddle you. I, I, I'm really, to be quite honest, not too much interested in a God that just simply wants to coddle me, right? And that is, that just does not feel masculine for, for what I feel like the Lord calls me to in this world. Like I, I, I grew up, I had a, I remember as a young kid, my, my grandfather at one of my football games, he says to me, now son, if you ever get hurt in a game, no matter what, you, you crawl off that field, right? Like or you get off that field. That's the way I was in grade. My grandpa played, he played uh, college football and wrestling. And so he's a tough guy. He says that to me. And uh, you know, as a kid, I already knew that anytime I got hurt, there was no time out for me. I'm getting off that field right? I remember playing football. I broke, I broke my leg in the middle of the field. And I remember I'm just crawl, trying to crawl. <laughs> I know my grandpa's in the stands. He had just, he has just said that to me. I got to get, get off this field. It was so, so gross that one of the coaches, uh, first one on the field sees it. He just yells, it's out of place. And he, he throws up. It was, it was, it was not, the, not the best response when you've got an injury, right? <laughs> like, oh, I should panic. Yeah, it's the kind of, but, but I'm not interested in just, just this coddling. There's, there's a place in life where when you think about comfort, it, it's, it's good to have that empathy, right? You, you do want to be coddled. You do, you do want to know someone's on your side, pat your little head and wish you well. But, but, but it's more than just coddling here. This idea of comfort's also empowering. I mean, it carries these, these two positions of, of God meeting you in your greatest need to comfort you there. But also understanding that God has called you to more. He's called you not to, not to simply just be at a stalemate with darkness, but he wants to empower you and strengthen you to live the mission for which he has, he has sent you on in this world. And so the God of all comfort meets us in our need to, to not just be even with the darkness, but to overcome it. 
And, and so this, this idea of what, what the Lord is saying to us is, look, we, we may not have the full picture of every struggle that we're going through in life, but God is doing something. And the reason we know that is because he meets us in his presence in that struggle to strengthen us to do whatever he's called us to in the midst of that hardship that we're enduring. And, and not only that, he, he says to us in verse four, look at this. There, there's further reason beyond it. He says, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Some of the greatest ministry you will ever do in your life will be birthed from some of the greatest pain you have ever endured in this world. You will learn something in your struggle that will give you empathy and compassion towards those that have walked a similar road. God is saying not only... Not only does he want to work through you, but he doesn't wait to work through you when everything feels kosher in your life. But God can work through you in the mess right now. Now, it's not saying to us, look, before you can help someone, you have to, you have to know exactly every struggle that they have gone through before you can. Like, I, I'm not telling you, uh, you, you, can't, you can't meet someone in their problems and hear what their problem is and be like, you know what? I haven't gone through that. Uh, uh, God be with you. <laughs> just walk away from it, right? You, you know, if you've just struggled in life at all, you, know, you don't have to know the detail of every struggle that there is to experience in this world to, to minister to someone else. But having struggled in this world, it starts to help you learn how to have empathy towards those that, that fight some of the similar battles that we all go through in this human experience. And Paul's saying, in those afflictions, become an opportunity to be a light for Jesus as the Lord meets you in that struggle to provide his comfort, his strength for you in this world. The cost has a purpose. And so he goes on and says this in verse 6. He says, um, maybe, I don't have any ability to click. There we go. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comforts. Uh, in the early church, they... they they had the tendency sometimes theologically, and I think we tend to do this, we can do this sometimes too if we're not careful, that just because bad things happen, that must mean, therefore, that God is not with you. I mean, they could look at the Apostle Paul and be like, look, Paul, we're, we could follow you as an apostle, but why would we do that? We can follow the super apostles. They seem to have a much easier life. Your life looks very hard, and God must hate you because it looks hard, right? I mean, we can, we can if we go through bad things, we might ask the question, God, where are you? Like as if all of a sudden we're, we're no longer connected to God, or somehow it's God's fault that we're going through these, these difficult circumstances. Let me, let me just remind you that when you go through adversity in life, you are not distant from God. In fact, I, I would say the scripture says the exact opposite, that God is near the brokenhearted. Meaning when you look at the life of Jesus, there's no one that struggled more than Jesus in order to connect his life to you, to show how he desires to meet you in your greatest hour of need and provide his strength for your life to connect with you relationally. When you go through adversity to life, it is not opposed to God. Your disdain for hard things in life is not contrary to God. It is the very thing that God came to war against. And God has placed you on mission in this world to be the demonstration of his goodness in the midst of that darkness. And that's what Paul's saying here. 
Look at Paul, and they're thinking, Paul, you're going through hard things. You can't be really following Jesus. He's saying, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? The reason I'm going through hard things is only for you. I'm laying my life down in this moment because your life is that important to the Lord. And I am modeling the very heart of Jesus by doing this. Well, I mean, if, if it was just about me, I would just take my ball and go home. I was leaving, living a posh life before this. I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. And I gave it all up. You think this is for me? But this is, this is for you. I'm doing all this for God's people, the church. And guys, when you think about doing ministry for the Lord, like the church is not a perfect place. It's messy. Sometimes it even hurts. But it's Jesus' bride. It's Jesus' bride. And I don't want to meet Jesus face to face saying, you know what, I'm glad you love the bride, but I felt the need to just smack her and get rid of her, right? Like, this is Jesus' bride. And Jesus' call to his church that makes up the bride is to help the, the, the bride look more lovable each and every day as we meet one another in those needs and point them to Christ and living for that purpose and discovering the God of all comfort. This, this is for you. Paul did this for you and for me to see the greatness of, of who the Lord is. In fact, Romans chapter 9, I love this heart of Paul. Romans chapter 9, verse, verse 1, listen to this. And talking about his, his Jewish brothers, uh, um, he says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites and, and to them belongs the adoption. Paul's saying, if I could just give over my spiritual life so that you could have life, I'm willing to go that far. So here, here Paul gives us in verse 8 in, in the example of his life. For we, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Let me just say, if someone ever says to you, God will not give you more than you can handle, you quote 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, all right? Because it plainly says in this verse that we experienced in Asia for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired for life itself. That is certainly beyond what he can handle. And in verse 9, indeed we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us. I love that. When you think about the idea of God, Paul makes no mistake as to which God he is referring to here. He, he says, um, it's not just, you know, God. I believe in God, right? It's, it's the God who can raise the dead. That's the God where I have put my faith. The God who raises the dead is where my trust is. And he delivered us from such a deadly peril and, and will deliver us on him. We have set our hope that we will deliver, he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that we many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayer of many. Uh, verse 10, Paul's saying, look, here's what happened to my faith, guys. 
I go into this moment, I am despairing of life. God meets me in that moment, and he supplies. And not only did I see God supply for that circumstance, but I know now he will continue to meet me in my struggles and supply. He is the God of all hope. And when we journey with God and we place that kind of faith with him, every step that we take is we find that he is faithful. It continues to strengthen us to, to perpetuate that same faith in the Lord with great hope. When you think about what, what is hope? Well, hope for us, it's established on the past president for future expectation. I mean, we're not asking anyone here to blindly just put hope on God and, gee, let's just hope it works out, right? We have the evidence of God's repeated character continuing to show up throughout Scripture and then giving us the promises that he will continue to show up because he is the same God today. He is the God of all hope. The past sets the precedent for the future so that our hope is secure. And then he says something interesting in verse 11. So pray. Pray with me, right? He says, help, you must help us by prayer so that many will, be, will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through prayers of many. Um, and so here's the question. It's like, wait, if Paul is so dependent upon God and God is going to supply for him, is he all of a sudden changing course and taking a step back and now asking us to be the source of help? I thought God was supplying it. But what Paul's beginning to help us recognize is that when God moves in this world, the way that God most often desires to move is through the ones in which he has placed his spirit to dwell. Meaning when God does things in this world, his first place that he desires to make a difference is working through his own people. And the reason he desires to work through his own people is because you become the voice to give him glory as he makes a difference in this world. The greatest miracle God works and God's done many great miracles is the miracle of what he does in your heart. And as God works in your life and transforms your life, he then works through your life to make a difference in the lives of others. That is the primary place God desires to let his hand move is through people. Because the reason Jesus came was to rescue people. And so he's asking the believers here, why don't you pray? Pray to see if God might move in your heart to be the answer for what the need is in the circumstance. And Jesus did that with his disciples. He said, pray the Lord of the harvest would send forth labors into this world. And the gospels, the very next thing Jesus says after he says that is now go into this world. Because as the believers were praying for God to move, God was doing a work in their own heart to be the answer to that problem. And the same thing's true for us. That God's desire in your life as you engage this world, is to work through you in such a way that he shows his faithfulness in your life, but also uses you to be the mouthpiece to give him glory as he works in the hearts of others. God, help me to make a difference that is utterly disproportionate to who I am. It starts with worship and the willingness then to pay the cost as we trust in the God of all comfort. David Brainerd said it like this, is one of his prayers, let me forget the world and be swallowed up, swallowed up in the desire to glorify God. Now, I thought some of you would like David Brainerd because he's a, obviously business in the front, party in the back kind of a guy here. But David Brainerd died at, that's what you call a mullet, okay? In case you didn't get that, all right. David Brainerd um, died at the age of 29, 
He was alive in the 1700s. He, was, uh, he became a, a missionary to the Native Americans. He saw the atrocity that happened to them, and his heart went out to them, and he ministered to them, uh, died at the age of 29, but his heart so, so sold out to God that if you were to make a list and say, over the last 200 years, what are the, some of the greatest Christians to live? Uh, I will tell you this, your list will, will not neglect the souls of, of people David Brainerd impacted. Let me just read a few here for a moment. If you go back in church history, the last couple hundred years, and you ask some of the great Christian leaders, who is someone that made a tremendous difference in your life? They're, they're quick to say David Brainerd. And they're people like this, Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, Charles Spurgeon, William Carey, Adoniram Judson, Jim Elliott, Leonard Ravenhill. All he was, 29 years old, all he really was, was just a heart fully given over to God. And the things that the Lord did through his life, incredible. And the reality was it had nothing to do with his strength but everything to do with the God that worked through him. Lord, help me to make a difference that is utterly disproportionate to who I am. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.